Greetings, demigods and half-bloods. Welcome to Comic Book Nation's Riptide Radio, your Percy Jackson after show live and in studio here at Comic Book Headquarters in Nashville, Tennessee. I'm your host, ComicBook.com's Liam Crowley, joined alongside, as always, by Miss Nicole Drum. Nicole, it's New Year's. We're in 2024. What is your New Year's resolution this year? You know, I'm not a big resolution person, but I keep seeing everybody sharing how many books they read in 2023. So I think this year I'm going to get on that train and read more books. I love that. I had a stack. I put it up on my Instagram and also a resolution I had in 2023 was to launch a Percy Jackson podcast. And here we are. We are making New Year's resolutions happen live and in living color with Riptide Radio. And we're talking about Percy Jackson episode four. Nicole, we're at the mid-season finale. I cannot believe we're already halfway through season one. But as someone pointed out on Twitter, it means we're that much closer to hopefully getting season two down the line. Your overall impressions. This was the final episode in the batch of screeners that we got so this was one I, I kind of wanted to wait a little bit. I didn't want to ruin it by watching it all in one sitting. I want to spread these things out. When you first watched Percy Jackson episode four, this is brand new content. This is content that was never covered in a movie adaptation, in any other adaptation, in live action, in a Hollywood production. What was your overall impression? I really, really loved this episode. And granted, I'm a little biased because, you know, the St. Louis Arch is there. They're in St. Louis. I grew up in the St. Louis area. So for me, this was, might have been my most anticipated episode. Um, just because of the location, when to see it was. And I just loved it. I love getting to see this happen in live action. I was just very excited for this one. And I think they pulled it off really, 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 really well. Yeah, this was a special one because, like I said before, what we've seen in the Lightning Thief movie, you know, a lot of people don't really care for the movie. But the reality is, the first act of that movie is pretty faithful to the books. It only goes off the rails after we leave on TMs and all that. So getting to get to St. Louis and get with, echidna and the chimera and do all that kind of fun stuff i thought that this was going to be an episode that helped define this series and you said it last week nicole i feel like we're a broken record where every new episode becomes our new favorite episode this might be my favorite episode it was so good the cinematography was awesome bear mccreary's score absolutely crushed and the performances uh was something that really really tugged at my heartstrings. And that's what I want to start out with our big first talking point, the dichotomy, the the balance, the parallelisms between Percy's uh, parentage of Poseidon and Sally. We open this episode with a flashback of Sally Jackson taking a young Percy. Shout out Azrael Daman, who plays young Percy to perfection throughout this series. But I thought he had a really good performance in this episode, especially. And Sally's getting a little frustrated by the fact that he doesn't want to go and do the swim lessons and parents around are starting to stare a little bit. This episode ends with Poseidon making the save for Percy off screen, of course, using his kind of water powers, but doing it at the midnight hour, doing it in the fight or flight moment where he needs to come in and save his son. We have Sally, who is the most impatient parent, which is understandable. She's immortal. And then we have Poseidon, the immortal god, around for thousands of years, the most patient out there. Uh, did you notice this parallel, the way that they bookended this episode? I did. And, I, did. And, uh, I did. I also thought it was really interesting because I, I am a mom. And I thought it was really interesting that as someone who has dealt with a child who's not wanting to do the thing that you want them to do that you know is really important. I really think that they knocked it out of the park showing her impatience and a little bit of her frustration because she knows why it's important that he's learning to do this. He doesn't know that yet. I mean, he's a little kid. He's obviously not necessarily going to, even if he knew he wasn't going to understand it, but I really just empathize with her. And I thought it was really interesting. And then when we get to the end of the episode and dad is just chill and comes in at the last minute to save the day, I'm like, isn't that just like a dad? He was just able to sweep in there and just be like, nope, got it. And mom was just like, come on, kid, come on, do it. But I thought it was really interesting to show 
just the, the difference between the two parents, but how they're also both trying to get to the same goal. And I thought that was really interesting to show almost like the love of a parent and how it can be expressed in two different ways. And I thought that was really important, especially since we've seen Percy not really feel like he's gotten anything from his dad. And I think it's just really beautiful. And I think it also kind of shows the difference between how the mortals and immortals react mm -hmm. to the world around them, specifically yeah. with prophecy and fate. Because when someone like Sally Jackson hears of these big plans that are going to come for her son, she focuses on the negative aspect, but the, the fear that comes with it, the, the dangers that are going to come, the problems that are now going to be out of her control. While, you know, Chiron, we see, he's the most patient person in the world with Percy. He, he comes into frame and he's all like, you know, it's all going to be okay. You'll wait to see what the gods have in store for you. We'll get there eventually. And it's all going to work out because prophecy wills it so. Uh, I love how they kind of compare and contrast those two things because it goes to show how different the immortal worlds, the Greek mythology world of this franchise is. Going a little bit further, though, something I did want to bring up. I spoke with Azriel at the premiere who plays young Percy, and I asked him, people mentioned on socials, Azriel, you know, you have a little bit of a different hair than uh, Walker Scobell, who plays, you know, the Percy we know and love. Why didn't you wear a wig for this episode? You mentioned recently, I feel like I saw it on social media, that you couldn't wear a wig. Uh, for your role. Can you tell us why? I can tell you a little bit. So I'm going to say this in the most vague way possible. Perfect. You can't wear wigs underwater. I'm, I'm going to see. I don't want to say anything. I'm just going to say that. I thought that was hilarious. Of course, he can't mention the fact that he had to go underwater as young Percy, but still, we kind of all expected if he's going to come back into the show, he'll probably have some scenes in H2O. Uh, a big thing throughout this episode, Nicole, something that was completely original, was being on the Amtrak throughout the St. Louis Arch episode. I had some hesitations because as we know, Echidna does show up on the Amtrak itself. I was like, are we not going to go to St. Louis? Are we not going to see the Arch? Are we going to do this entire battle on a train? Fortunately, it was a nice 50-50 split, but something we got a huge luxury of by going on this Amtrak train is getting more conversations between Grover, Annabeth, and Percy, and most crucially, Percy and Annabeth. That conversation that Percy and Annabeth had together, what's going through your mind? The emotions. Nicole, oh I know I know you're thinking right now that we're, we're getting to a real good friendship that could turn into something more one day. Mm -hmm. I really loved it. And at first of all, I'm really glad they did that on the Amtrak because... And, and my St. Louis peeps will know this. The Amtrak station is so close to the arch that it just makes sense to kind of put those pieces together, as well as being a beautiful conduit for the, the building of this relationship. So I thought that was a really good choice and a good opportunity for them to talk. I don't know. I felt like it really offered an opportunity because one of the things with Annabeth is she's very, I don't want to say closed off because she's not really closed off, but we she's definitely got her armor up, which of course she would. She's a child of Athena. She's got her armor up. And I think those exchanges on the Amtrak really helped to show what I said in my review of this is that she's got this quiet vulnerability and we get to finally see her pulling back a little bit of that armor when she's talking to Percy and they understand each other better, which we obviously see in the episode becomes really important because it, I feel like it gives him a more of a buy-in to these people are really people I care about, especially when it comes down to when they're dealing with what they end up dealing with at the arch and it just it's definitely gives us more insight into annabeth and we can really see that beginning to see her as more than just the badass that she is and i really loved getting to do that in the context of this journey especially when it gets thrown into that what should have been a cool and chill train ride did, did not become a cool and chill train ride at all at all 
And I would love to say that I can have experiences of Amtrak rides going off the rails, but they never have. All my Amtrak rides have been perfect. I could relate to the Greyhound that was happening in the past episodes because I've had many Greyhound rides go off the rails. Uh, but you mentioned uh, how Percy and Annabeth, that conversation kind of gives a little bit of insight into mm-hmm. Annabeth and who she is and her ultimate goal. Something I loved that the, the kids were bringing up in past interviews was the fact that The books are all told, at least the main core pentology is told through Percy's perspective. We now have the luxury of having some scenes that are told through Annabeth's perspective and Grover's perspective and speaking on Grover. We see that a little bit later in the episode when they're in uh, the snack car of the train, the the cafe car, big fan of the cafe car. Whenever I take the Amtrak to New York, it's my favorite spot. And Grover reveals something that we all know from reading the books, another bit of implied backstory. Leading up to this episode, we had so much implied backstory with Grover, with Thalia, with Uncle Ferdinand, and now the big one, the quest for Pan. He revealed that that is his ultimate goal, is to find Pan to do something that no satyr has done before and bring the God of the Wild back to the forefront. The fact that this has been spoken I was saying this to uh, to some of my friends earlier about New Year's resolutions, how sometimes we get scared of writing things down because then it becomes real. And when it becomes real, then it's like, well, then failure seeps in of like, oh, my God, do we even want to go here? Saying pan out loud, I know that that was something covered in the early Percy Jackson books. But part of me was like, if they're not going to commit to that storyline, because it is a big storyline, maybe they don't even hint at it in season one and they only define it in a season two, a season three. The fact that they said it out loud gives me so much confidence for season two. Uh, it gives me so much confidence for where they're going to take the character of Grover and the reaction that Annabeth and Percy give him as well, the support that they kind of share, mm-hmm. really touched my heart, you know? I love seeing how they're they're really starting to root for one another in a way. Like, we're, we're definitely seeing them kind of come together as like, this is one journey, but it's also three journeys. And I really love that in this episode, we really get to see that, like... They're all on this journey together, but they're also on their own journeys. And we really get to see that develop so much. And the young actors do such a good job of selling that, especially now that we've seen them go through some pretty wild stuff up to this point. And then it gets even wilder. Yeah, you talk about even wilder. The mother of all monsters showed up. That's right. Echidna played by none other than Suzanne Cryer. We spoke on the red carpet, uh, the blue carpet, I should say, for the Percy Jackson world premiere. And I asked her, what are you doing messing with this 12-year-old kid? And she thinks that he deserves it. Take a look. Uh, you're throwing a kid hundreds of stories. Yeah. Uh, uh, a kid who deserves it. A kid who deserves to be thrown. A kid who deserves what he's getting. This kid <laughs> killed my kid. This kid killed my kid. And I am, you know, you can call me a monster, but why am I more of a monster than he is? That's my point, you know? I'm like, listen. Let's let's really take a hard look at ourselves, Mr. Percy. I'm so nice, Jackson. Like, no, it's not okay to go around killing other people's children. And I don't care if my child looks a little different and maybe has claws and, and a dragon head or a snake bottom or whatever he has, he's still my baby. You make all fair points. I can't argue with any of that. And something I love about Suzanne Cryer's performance is we've been praising all the guest stars who come in and they show they don't tell. Medusa did a wonderful job, uh, that being Jessica Parker Kennedy with her portrayal of the snake-haired monster of just like, listen, stuff has happened to me. I'm not going to tell you everything because then that's kind of in your face and it doesn't feel like true backstory. She sells it. She sold it. She she was upfront about what was going on and, and it added. It gave her layers and all that. I thought Suzanne Cryer especially, just talking about all of her history within Greek mythology, talking about being the mother of all monsters, the fact that she's interconnected to every time Percy kills a monster. Mm-hmm. 
thought that was wonderful. Uh, and the fact that she doesn't lose in this episode, again, this was great because uh, we talked about leading up in, in past episodes of Riptide Radio, the frustration of Percy at the end of the day. He's getting a lot of wins and we know who he will become. But right now he's very much a rookie. And when he's beating these legendary monsters, it makes those monsters feel less important. Echidna, mm -hmm. that is that couldn't be further from the truth. She, she wins her battles and she wins them in yes, a big way. Does. And she is just so delightfully creepy. Like she unsettled me. And it's like, I'm like, I know, I know what's supposed to happen here. And I know what this character is, but like the performance was just so unsettling and like unnerving. And I just really enjoyed that so much. Yeah. And the fact that it also starts on the arch, uh, it starts on the Amtrak, I should say. And then uh, it goes that, that was something that it made me nervous at first, but I think having that one-on-one -on -one conversation uh, between Echidna and Percy and Annabeth and Grover, mm -hmm. I thought gave so much depth to what could have just been another faceless monster that they're trying yeah. to destroy. Uh, having that monster with a mouthpiece, giving kind of a human yes. side uh, to Echidna, I thought was a wonderful decision. And that's what takes us to St. Louis, to the Gateway Arch, the main event of this episode, arguably the main event of the entire first half of this season. And the fact that they make a little bit of a change here and that the Gateway Arch is a temple to Athena. I like that choice. I like that they kind of go in that direction that's a change from the books that i think is absolutely warranted and then it also relates to the fact that they're going to go and try ask try and ask athena for help and what happens she's not going to answer because she was embarrassed because of the decision to ship medusa's head to olympus which by the way is in the first book is in the lightning thief myself and nicole we slipped we made a mistake last week we thought that that was a new choice it wasn't maybe gabe will still meet uh, medusa's eyes by the end of this season either way Having the Gateway Arch be a temple to Athena and having the revelation to Annabeth of, hey, maybe your mother's not this pure, like, without fault deity. How, how are you feeling in that moment? I, first of all, the choice to make it a temple to Athena, I thought was absolutely brilliant. And again, as somebody who grew up in the St. Louis area, that's my new personal real life canon. That's a temple to Athena as far as I'm concerned. It's, it's now set in stone. I thought that was a really good choice because Annabeth was really very arrogant in episode three, when it came to Medusa, this idea that, well, Medusa would never do that to someone like you're lying. And then now she's experiencing it for herself. She's experiencing it. How, for lack of a better term, petty her mom can be when she's embarrassed. And I thought that was a really interesting moment because Annabeth is getting checked for her own arrogance, her own hubris a little bit. And then it also adds a whole new layer of stakes to this situation because they're going to have to figure this out on their own against arguably the scariest thing that they have come up against where they are immensely outclassed. Like this isn't just a, Oh, we're going after a mythical monster and we're, we're going to, we're going to go ask for help. This is a mythical monster and it's mama. And how are we going to do this? Cause now we're on our own, especially since, you know, Grover's Grover. Percy hasn't had any help from his dad. And now Athena's like, you embarrass me, kid. I'm sorry. No, I, you could just see the look on her face. Like, Oh, we're on our own, aren't we? Crap. Yeah. And, and it, I really liked that. It's being thrown into uncharted territory for Annabeth, mm -hmm. someone who is always six set, six steps ahead. That's what yep. Luke says in the early episodes. And now she's in a position where she is, for the first time, one step behind, behind. Uh, and being forced to figure it out on their own. And also, what I love, too, is when that happens, when Annabeth is, is put in a position where she is unfamiliar with what to do next, she wants to take the reins. She is the one who is prepared to fight the Chimera at the top of the St. Louis Gateway Arch, and she takes Riptide. And I was like, okay, 
Maybe we're going to get a little change from the books, a little bit of uh, uh, when Bucky uses the shield from Captain America, like like we're going to switch the weapon and all that. And no, she takes the sword, but then Percy switcheroos. He closes the door. He forces himself. And by the way, he's looking lethargic like crazy. Like, oh my God, the sunken eyes and everything. I thought for a second, I was like, man, this dude needs to get some sleep. I, I was concerned for Walker. And then I was like, oh, wait a minute. No, he got a, He got a needle uh, in his shoulder earlier in this episode. He is actively dying. And the fact that he's still going to put himself on the line for his friends and not put his friends in danger because he knows that he kind of got them into this mess to begin with, I thought was so brave. I thought it was a great character choice. And beyond that, he loses. He should not be winning this battle. He Not only is he a rookie, not only is he untrained with a sword, but he is ridiculously fatigued. He's operating at like 30% health and he, he takes an L. And I think that is so great for his character development because it just goes to show he has so much more to learn and we're not overpowering him so early on in these episodes. Nicole, the question I want to ask you though is the moments when we get to that wide shot of Percy falling through the gateway arch. I want to know how long it took you to pick your jaw up off the floor. Cause I know for me, I was like, this is the greatest thing ever. And I know we're not at my home studio, but when we're back there, you're probably going to see a big canvas print in the background of that shot. Cause Oh my God, gorgeous. Oh my God. I think my jaw might still be on the floor. Like it was such a cool shot. And I'm just like, is he, he's falling. He's, he's literally falling. And like, like my brain, like my logical brain is going, they cannot kill him. Because if we kill if we kill him, we don't have a show. He's not gonna die. But then the rest of me's going, he is falling into the Mississippi River. There are creepy things in the Mississippi River. That is not super, super deep. This is terrible. This is so it was beautifully done. Like I think it was beautifully framed and just and then we see, you know, it's not exactly a fall necessarily. Like there there's a little something happening there. And I thought that was really cool and very epic. And I have to I've never thought of that particular part of the world as being epic. That was epic. That was epic. Yeah. And the, the decision to, I believe in the books, he kind of just kind of plummets into the Mississippi River. Mm -hmm. We know based on how things are spread out in St. Louis, you know, especially that that yes. is not a direct drop that that can't mm -hmm. happen. The fact that the wave kind of comes in and swoops them like a hand, yes. uh, I thought was fantastic. And the fact that we end this episode, again, great parallel too with the whole dichotomy between Sally's parentage and, and Poseidon's parentage. We get a water nymph talking to Percy and just being like, listen, it's going to be okay. Just breathe. You can do this. Just breathe. And he's freaking out. He's thrashing and all that. And he has the realization of like, oh, I can breathe underwater. And that moment, that 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 is like Spider-Man crawling up the wall for the first time. Like that, that's like Captain America realizing he's got his super strength. Like Percy has come into his own uh, with something that's so defining for him as, as a hero. Uh, and this is a moment that I feel like is going to be immortalized in, in this in this show. Like when we look back at this thing, hopefully after a full five seasons, this will be a moment where people realize this is where the Percy Jackson we know and love came into form. Uh, and I mean, I was frustrated that we we end right on that moment because I wanted to have more in that moment. But what a great, I don't even want to say cliffhanger because we know where it's going, but you know what right. I mean? What a great note yeah. to end this episode on. Yeah, it was one of those things I'm like, that's it? We don't get more? I need more. Come on, give me more. But it was a perfect place because it's also, I think because of the way it ends there, it gives us as the viewers a chance to almost put ourselves in Percy's shoes to where we have to absorb the fact that he just breathed underwater. Like, 
the moment has arrived and we have to sit with that for a whole stinking week while we wait for the next episode to find out what it means that he has had this moment. That's not, not necessarily an origin, but it's the, it's the locking in of everything. It's like, now I have to sit with it. And I thought that was super cool. It kind of feels like an origin. And uh, yeah, the fact that if, if the first half of the season was our Percy Jackson origin story, I'm excited to see what happens when we fully embrace uh, the hero side of his story. Nicole, we both have a lot of great insight on Percy Jackson. We're both big fans of the books. Right. We both grew up uh, on these stories. But someone who has insight that we can't even tap into because he shot this thing for eight months is Mr. Aryan Simhadri, who plays Grover himself this week on Riptide Radio. That's right. We are joined by Grover himself, Aryan Simhadri, who's going to give us all of his insight into how they shot this episode, all of his stuff with Pan and everything else more. Check it out. So I teed it up, and here he is, Mr. Aryan Zamhadri, Grover Underwood himself. Hey. Thank you so much for joining the show. I'm so glad we could have you on this episode of all episodes where we are live in studio. We got your picture behind here. Everything's going crazy. Uh, can you believe that we're at the mid-season finale uh, of this show? Can you believe we're already half That's crazy. I, I don't know. It's insane to think that the, the season's going to be done in like, you know, 30 days. Yeah, it's moving. It's moving for sure. And something that you said when we first got started on this quest, you're going to pack the best snacks. We've only seen a couple snacks so far. What's the, what's the full spread looking like, Aryan? Can you tell us? It's That's not information um, at Disclosure. I, I can't reveal that. Um, but I, I remember that the stunt guys made like prop, like fondant tin cans, and I downed two of them. And I don't think they let me eat them in the show because I wouldn't be eating them all the time. Right. Yeah. You got to ration at some point because this yeah. is a, it's a cross country quest. And uh, the episode we get to uh, here that we're talking about, we were in St. Louis, we're at the Gateway Arch, we're on the Amtrak train. Uh, do you have any personal experiences with Amtrak or are, are, you a, are you a train rider by any chance? I, I've been on some trains, not the Amtrak specifically, but I, yeah, I've been on my fair share of trains. They use them a lot in India and I love New York. So I took, I take the Metro everywhere when I'm down there. Um, yeah, but I've never been on the Amtrak. But it was fun. It was. I'm glad that my first experience on one was blowing it up. <laughs> I was gonna say, if you've had experiences on trains before, I'm, I'm sure you've never confronted a chimera on a train uh, before. Uh, this whole episode, I remember when production was going on uh, and just covering the show. You guys were so much based on that soundstage in Vancouver, but this yeah. one you went to a pier to shoot. Was this the first time you were able to like leave the soundstage and, and shoot on location? Um. I, I actually know in episode three, Medusa's mansion was our first camp half blood and Medusa's mansion were our first on location sets. But this one's, this is definitely the one that we went the farthest for because in the scene where we're like stepping out of the, like the railway and we're kind of like running across the tracks that was on location and it was in a completely different area. Wow. Yeah. The way that you guys were able to recreate St. Louis, I was shocked because at first I was like, we're on the train so much. I was like, are we going to even go to St. Louis? Because I know they didn't shoot there. And then we see the arch and everything. It was a phenomenal job of, of recreating everything. But I want to talk about stuff that you guys went through on the train specifically. The conversation you, Percy, and Annabeth have uh, when you're kind of sitting in the bunk bed. You, you don't want to be disturbed. You're trying to get your beauty sleep, of course. It's very important for satyrs. Uh, when you're hearing that conversation and, and you're seeing uh, how Percy and Annabeth are, are getting a little bit closer, starting to understand each other, on the scale of like colleagues to friends where do you think we're at right now with with you three as a trio well being the midpoint like kind of finale halfway through the season i think we're starting we're just starting to bond and 
even like in the books, the the trains is kind of where Annabeth starts to get a little closer to Percy. And so we're getting to the point where she's starting to trust him a little more. She's starting to kind of, cause she was concerned that he was just going to, you know, derail the quest if it meant saving his mom. But I think now she can kind of ease up on the, on the reins a little bit. Exactly. Everyone's starting to trust each other a little bit more. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. It's clear too with Grover because you open up big time in this episode. You you divulge uh, the big purpose that, that that Grover has throughout the entire Percy Jackson pentology, uh, and that's finding Pan, the, the quest for the God of the Wild. There's something that I love about the fact that we define uh, what your purpose is in this show at this point in the first season because now it's become real. Like now we're like, okay, we're, we're, we're going to go somewhere. Uh, when you first spoke those lines uh, of saying Pan out loud, defining that character, the God of the wild, did you feel the weight uh, of what was about to happen? A hundred percent. Cause I had been waiting to talk about Pan for, I mean, at this point in production, like three or four months now. And so getting to actually say his name and tee up Grover's like reason for not just going on this quest, but you know, his life's purpose. That was kind of an intense moment and something that we worked with our our acting coach on set a lot about like just exploring who pan is and what he means to you know not just grover but like all satyrs mm -hmm. and something also too we we see grover when he's looking outside uh and seeing just a couple centaurs here and there and saying how the wild used to be much more populated uh yeah. the mythical creatures coming into the real world because this is our first time defining what the god of the wild means to grover if we go back and watch episodes one through three, are we going to see Grover look at nature a little differently now that we have that knowledge? That's a really good question. Um, I think I think he does. I think especially like when he's looking at the council, I think Camp Half-Blood to him is the only place that can kind of truly capture like what the world was like before kind of Penn went off the radar. Because, um, you know, Dahlia's tree kind of acts as like the golden fleece which has, you know, those powers of the, of Pan. And so Valia's tree kind of like holds his spirit, I guess, is kind of the last anchor of, of Pan in Camp Half-Blood. Wow, that's really special. And yeah, you mentioned Talia's tree. It's a big part of the quest that you will eventually go on and, and, and pursue Pan. We, we spoke, um, I believe it was at the press junket in LA when I asked you about how much implied backstory Grover has. And we, yeah, see, it with yeah, yeah. Uh, we see it with Talia and Talia, I should say, and just the quest for getting her to Camp Half-Blood. Here, here's a bit of implied backstory that we are going to take further. Like we know that this is something that's been in the back of Grover's mind for a while, but this is something that we're now going to see him explore going further down the line. So in your head as an actor, are you already starting to kind of like map out where you want to hopefully take that in future episodes? A little bit. I think the, the best thing about adapting a, a well-known and well-loved book series is you know where the characters are going to end up. Like I know like what Grover's relationship with Pan is going to be moving forward. And so the fact that I can kind of tee up like his relationship with the God of the wild moving forward, knowing where it is going to end up. I don't have to like take shots in the dark. Like, does he mean Pan? Does he not? I know. And so getting to set those up early on is, is really nice. That's special. And uh, I, I have to ask, have you been fitted for a wedding dress yet? Not yet. Oh, dude, I've been waiting. Oh my God. I would, I've been talking to Walker about this. I really want to do like, um, like, you know, those scenes in movies where it's like they're trying on wedding dresses and he comes out and it's like, oh, not that one, not that one. And then they walk out and they slowly look up and the camera like pans along the dress and it cuts Pan. to the person, pans along the dress. Uh, 
Yeah. Um, and the, it cuts to the other person and they're like, I think you found the one. I want to do that as like BTS or like a say yes to the dress kind of thing. I love what they've been doing on Instagram with all the different types of reels. Uh, yeah. of just like the behind the scenes featurettes. That's one. If and when it happens, because we know. It really we, happens. Nothing confirmed just yet, but season two, uh, I'm looking yeah. at you for that kind of featurette. Uh, I want to talk about Suzanne Cryer. You share a, a great scene with her. Oh, yeah. Obviously, Walker and Leah are there too. This is something I, I always love, how the, the magic of the show is you guys are the anchors of it. You guys are the, the constant, but we're getting so many guest stars that it keeps it fresh. It keeps you on your toes uh, exactly. no matter what's happening. Suzanne Cryer, a, a veteran actor like that being on mm -hmm. set, uh, what did you kind of glean from her? What did you kind of take away from her presence and sharing a scene with her? so much i mean with an actor like that you kind of just getting to watch their performance is like a learning experience in and of itself she she's also a mother in real life and so that connection she confided in us she was like that connection to her and like echidna is, is very real they're both parents they both technically speaking want what's best for their children um and so just like seeing how well she translated that personal connection from her life into like the scene that was that was pretty incredible yeah it definitely sold she's she talking about implied backstory i i felt yeah. thousands of years of history with every line of dialogue she spoke and like the, like this has always been a family story oh dude what a line man I, that that one sent shivers down my spine i, I love that one uh you said uh later in the episode when percy's kind of in his like sunken place and he's very fatigued you know he got the the needle in his in his shoulder and all that that you know you don't have to do this you don't have to fight and then, of course, Percy has the bait and switch. He's going to hand, hand Riptide to Annabeth, but instead he's the one who decides to take the fight and closes the door. You're obviously, your, your relationship, I keep saying your, Grover's relationship with, with yeah. Percy. It's, it's very like there's a friendship there, but almost like Grover is the seasoned veteran. He's been a satyr for a while. He's known this world a little bit longer. Percy is still very new to it. So from Grover's perspective, when Percy decides to make that leap and defend his friends, at like 30% energy as still a rookie in this whole half-blood world. How do you think Grover views Percy differently after he makes that switch and says like, I'm going to defend you guys, whether or not you want me to. I think the biggest thing is like Annabeth is the first one who points out this comparison, but I think from then Grover understands how similar he is to Thalia because she does the same thing. And that's his biggest fear is that he'll have to rely on his charge to protect him. Like he won't be, good enough to defend the both of them. And I think it's that moment that he starts to look at Percy differently because Percy pulls through and he like just barely like manages to get away from that alive. And I think he, I think the biggest thing is that he starts to trust the both, the both of them more. He's less scared that he's going to lose Percy and more confident that he'll be able to trust Percy to make the right decisions. And that just, that kind of like centers Grover because he's very skittish and he's very anxious and he's always worried that Percy's going to do something stupid. And I think Grover still thinks that he's going to do stupid things, but at least he can trust that they're going to be good for the group and that he's not going to do something that he knows is not going to work out. Yeah, and I love the fact that you bring up the trust aspect because right before the quest is about to begin, this is going back to episode three, we see Percy recruit Grover to go on the quest, but the way it's cut up, is we get the second half of the prophecy while he makes that decision. Yeah. You're betrayed by one who calls you friend. You're talking about how Grover is learning to trust Percy more in, in these episodes. 
when you when you see that scene and see how it was edited together, do you think that there's like a level of distrust that Percy has for Grover? I think. Damn, that's a good question. It's hard. Think, yeah, it, it, it's layered, man. It's layered. It's out layered. Oof. I think the biggest thing isn't a distrust in Grover, but in like Grover is Percy's best friend. Like he has no assurance that this isn't going to end. Like the second something goes wrong like he he doesn't have experience with having a friend who like will stay with him in spite of you know his brashness or, or whatever else it might be he's kind of used to people seeing that side of him and then immediately leaving and you know growing up with with Gabe of all people can't help that for sure and I think he he trusts Grover with I mean he trusts Grover with his life clearly but he I think doesn't trust himself that he'll be able to make the right decisions to get Grover to stay. And I think that's the biggest kind of, because they already started such a close place. And so having like already such a deep bond, like try and go deeper, that's a difficult thing to do. But I think they pulled it off really well because that's where the bonding happens, you know? Yeah, it's almost a distrust of the the greater Greek mythology world. It's, it's not exactly. necessarily yeah, yeah. specifically. It's just this is a whole new game, whole new playing field, and he's constantly being confronted with people uh, who are making him distrust the world around him even more. Yeah. Uh, we mentioned it with Echidna in this episode, and you know we don't want to touch too much on it because I haven't seen it. Uh, you might have seen it, but next week, God is going to buy you guys. I've seen a little bit. You've seen a little bit. God's going to buy you guys cheeseburgers, and I've yeah. I've read the Lightning Thief, and usually that doesn't end too well, but everyone keeps uh, praising. As Becky especially always praises this original scene uh, that you have with Adam, uh, Adam Copeland, who plays Ares. And you told me at the blue carpet, you won't tell me who's interrogating who, but it might be a little bit of an interrogation scene. The question I want to ask you, Dior Goodjohn legitimately scared Walker when she screamed uh, and after he snapped the spear. Did you have that moment with Adam? Same thing here. A hundred percent. There's this, all right. Um, there's this, sorry, this is a bit of a, like a side tangent. There's this bit where, Ares kind of like leans into Grover because Grover like says something that's a little off and you think he kind of Grover kind of like disses Athena a little bit to try and like not die um and you just have this moment where you think Grover is just gonna like kick it right there um and Ares like leans in and he has this like dark lighting on him and Adam slams the table and I jump out that's not acting that's not in the script like, I wasn't told to, like, be scared. I'm just, like, terrified in that moment. There's one take where he hits a table and a coffee cup, like, clatters to the ground. And, like, even just thinking about just, like, remembering that, my heart is beating faster. Like, that's how good of an actor that Adam was. Like, it was truly terrifying. Did you see any highlights of his AEW match over the weekend? Which, oh, yeah, his big return, right? Yeah, well, but there was a flaming table, Aryan. He he jumped off the, the the rafters. Like this dude is crazy out here. I saw it, like whatever he posted about it. I saw all that stuff like New Year's. I saw that photo of him standing, like just like shirtless with the belt, and that he's like Aries offset too. You know, there's a flaming table. There was a fl- he put uh, this this uh, wrestler named Nick Wayne. He he power bombed him through. Uh, a table that was on fire and uh i put it on my instagram story and i said this is not what we meant by burnt offerings but uh oh i saw that yeah yeah right oh my god 
I can't believe way, about that. That's insane. I love I love introducing Percy Jackson fans to who Adam is in his other job because yeah. you would realize, oh no, he plays Aries just about every single day yeah. of the year, and this just happened to be the perfect marriage for everyone. Aaron, uh, those are all the questions I have about episode four. Thank you so much uh, for joining us on Riptide Radio, and I haven't seen any episodes in the back half. So I am so stoked to be on an even playing field with, with yeah. everyone else. And uh, I feel like it's only going to get better from here. You can, yeah, it definitely does. Every, from six onwards, it's just, it's, it's nonstop. It's really good. Well, thank you so much, Arian, for joining Riptide Radio. And as we just mentioned at the very end of that chat, we're getting Aries next week, Nicole. We saw it in the little bit of a preview. And they've been teasing. They've been building up a big original scene that happens between Aries and Grover. It might be a little bit of an interrogation. Who's interrogating who? We'll find out next week. But, Nicole, when you watch that 30-second preview, which I've been loving that they're doing those like post-credit trailers, your reaction, Adam Copeland's, the door closes. Oh my, god. oh my god. coming. Oh my god. I'm just I was my mind was I'm also like I could keep going on how the casting here is so good, but that just looks so good. And I'm scared. <laughs> like I don't know what to expect. I'm scared, but it looks so good and I want it like right now. And I'm dying that we don't have a screener so I can creep ahead. <laughs> This is the episode I think I'm most looking forward to because I'm a big wrestling fan. The fact that Edge is involved mm -hmm. in this show, yeah. uh, the fact that we're getting Aries. We talked about things that weren't touched before in the 2010 movie adaptation. Aries is such an integral part of the Lightning Thief story. And the fact that we're now getting to his portion of that story means we're really kicking this thing into full gear. So I'm stoked for next week's episode. Uh, hopefully we have a pretty big guest. You know, things are still in the works. Can't say anything just yet. But still, so far, uh, we've had good people on the show. And I hope you guys have been enjoying all of our insights and all of our interviews. Nicole, before we get out of here, what's going on in your life? What are you doing at comicbook.com? Um, right now, I'm just settling into 2024 and seeing what kind of chaos we've got. I'm just, I'm just here for the ride right now. And again, as always, I'm just going to tell people, keep reading the books. Because I, can't, I cannot stress enough. If you enjoyed this week's episode, trust me, the books are awesome. And if you're not already picking them up, why haven't you done that already? Come on. Time's a ticket. Let's do it. That's a good question. Read more books in 2024. I love it. Uh, on comicbook.com, I got so many articles coming out about all things pro wrestling, AEW, WWE. The season is kicking into full gear. We got the Royal Rumble coming up. But on the Percy Jackson front, we have so many interviews coming up with cast. We have so many interviews from the blue carpet that I haven't been able to release yet because they're spoiler territory. So still keep a lookout uh, for all those little tidbits on comicbook.com, on socials, at comicbook, at comicbooknation, and on my personals, at Liam T. Crowley. Thank you guys so, so much for tuning in to Riptide radio the first episode in studio in nashville tennessee uh, we will see you next week for a god buys us cheeseburgers